This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter. Visit enterpriseinspace.org. This is Walter Koenig, Chekhov from Star Trek, and you're listening to Trek FM. You're a rainy day. I can't change the laws of physics. Welcome, everyone, to Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated podcast that covers the original and new cast of Captain Kirk and the Enterprise. I am Ken Tripp, and Zach is off once again filming the Green Berets for the next two weeks, and I am very happy to have a well-known Trek FM alumni aboard. He is the co-host of Earl Grey, self-proclaimed star of Earl Grey, Trek FM's production manager and an associate producer for Standard Orbit and good friend Richard Marquez. Richard, welcome to the show. Oh, hey, thanks for that great intro. Um, yeah, I don't think the here. other guys are going to be too mad that that you said that I had to, you know was in your contract that you were the star of Earl Grey. That's okay, right? No, oh, that that's okay. That's okay. I'll, I'll bill you later. <laughs> oh, okay, I, I, hey, it's it's what's in your rider. I hope you have the champagne and green M and M's and all the other things you asked for. You good? No, 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 no. It's purple M and M's, dude. And I need rose Damn. petals all over the my couch in my dressing room. Uh. <laughs> That, that's a beaver joke. Sorry. <laughs> you are a very high maintenance guest. Let me tell you, I I went on your show just for the honor of appearing. But you know, I understand you had to reduce yourself to come to Standard Orbit. I get it. No worries. But in all seriousness, Richard, I'm glad you're here today. We, um, you know, we've we've been doing a lot of I think interesting topics, and and we keep trying to come up with new and different ideas. And and in this week's show, I think we're really going to put our our geek on and and have some fun and uh, we're going to be talking some battles. But before we do, I have a um, a quick message I wanted to read from our buddy Brad Alexander. He he emails a lot. He's he's um, he's been a, a long time listener. He's not on Facebook and uh, I'm I'm behind. There's a couple of other messages I have to catch up on that I will. One that was pretty critical of us, and I want to make sure we put the good with the bad. I just don't happen to have my hands on it right now, but I will do that. So uh, Brad writes, another great show idea, guys, though I have to admit Trek and pop culture is a huge subject area. Boy, he's right about that. I was mowing my grass yesterday while I was listening, and it was yelling in glee every time you mentioned a reference, especially when you started out with Saturday Night Live skit, back when SNL was funny, the Carol Burnett one, the In Living Color one. Oh, forgive the non sequitur here, but I have another podcast you should be listening to. Mike Rowe of Dirty Jobs and Deadliest Catch fame does a podcast for curious people with short attention spans. Not sure how to take that, Brad, <laughs> but I do like Mike Rowe. Uh, called the way I heard it. Ken, you would probably remember Paul Harvey's The Rest of the Story from our childhood. I used to listen to Paul Harvey on WBZ, 1030 AM in Boston every single day. So yes, I do remember, Brad. Well, this is Mike Rowe's homage to that show. A couple of them I think are appropriate, and he sent me some links. 
As for some pop cultural references, I'm, I am with you, Senior Chief, about Friends and to the extent of Seinfeld. I've referred to them as shows with kind of whiny New Yorkers and first world problems. Funny someone else was saying that earlier. I can take or leave the Big Bang Theory, and not only am I a Star Trek geek, but also a Linux geek, and many of their jokes are just entirely too on the nose. Stargate also has a rich Star Trek referencing pool, and if you count fan films, Corin Nemec, who played Jonas Quinn on SG-1, also played Captain Alvarez in Star Trek Renegades. Oh, I remember that. Okay. Finally, one of the most important pop culture effects of Star Trek is the fact that Ronald Moore's reimagined Battlestar Galactica was actually born in the Deep Space Nine writer's room. I didn't realize that's where he came up with it. Hmm. Hmm. Apparently, um, Ronald Moore said there were stories that he wanted uh, to tell that couldn't be told in the Star Trek universe. Well, that definitely makes sense. For me personally, DS9 is my favorite Trek, even though Kirk is my captain, as he should be. In fact, the BSG, DS9, and the... um, and the Honor Harrington series are some of my favorite pieces of science fiction. Have either of you read the Honorverse books? Have you read any of that, Richard? Nope, can't Honorverse? say they have. No. Mm-mm. I'll have to look that up, yeah. It, it, um, it might be an interesting to-do side-by-side comparison of the Harrington universe to the Star Trek universe. I've got to do that. Anyway, uh, what, what do you think? Well, um, first, Brad, I, I always appreciate your feedback. I appreciate all our le- listeners' feedback, and it's... It's, it's fun to be able to engage, and, and I do like the fact that uh, you send in nice emails, well thought out, constructive, and, um, you know, your opinion matters a lot. You know, us old people, we got to stick together. So, um, no, I, I, everything you wrote, I, I pretty much agree with, and I, I will, I, I do think very highly of, um, uh, of who's the, what was the name of that guy who did... Um, Mike Rowe, who did the Dirty Jobs and Deadliest Catch. I know he's the narrator for Deadly. Mike Rowe did a, a segment up in Lake Winnipesaukee not that long ago on Dirty Jobs, and I, I have a house up there, and I got a real kick out of it. So, yes, thank you. Thank you for writing, and uh, we appreciate the feedback. And if anyone uh, wants to send us a note at any time, we'll be happy to read it. I said good or bad, and it was a real bad one, Richard, I got from a guy named Wright was his last name, and and write didn't write nice things, but that won't keep me from reading it. I just got to pull it back up and, and get it out of a folder. So <laughs> anyway, yeah, he, he did not he did he did not like our review of Star Trek 09 at all, and um, he had phasers set for disrupt. Let's put it that way. Ooh, that's rough. <laughs> yeah, it was a it was a little rough. It was a little rough, but that's okay. Um, you know, it, some people are passionate about Trek, and we know that. I think our goal on this show is as much as possible is to find that uh, that neutral fun area, especially where we're digging into stuff that's that's really old, except for our, our new movies, and trying to keep it um, as entertaining as possible, thought-provoking when we can, and uh, we move on. So, today, uh, Richard is here to talk about a subject that, that I have a lot of interest in. Now, it's always dangerous when Zach goes on trips. He's, um, he's filming the Green Berets somewhere up in Alaska. I don't think it's going to come off too well if it's a jungle story, but I didn't tell him that. Um, we're going to be focused today on which of the battles was a better battle. So we're calling it the Battle of the Battles. I don't know if that title will stick for the podcast, but I like the Battle of the Battles. And Richard and I were talking uh, earlier in the week, and we decided to compare the Battle of the Mutara Nebula from the Wrath of Khan to the Battle of Kittimer. I would say Camp Kittimer, I guess, would be appropriate. Mm-hmm. And there were two battles of Kittimer. There was one uh, in TNG fame uh, from 
yesterday's enterprise, but there was one that was made, uh, there was a battle that occurred before that during the initial peace talks from the undiscovered country. So we thought we'd take a look at those two sequences and find out which one was more kind of entertaining, relevant, and the strategies that were involved. So Richard, if you wouldn't mind, if you feel comfortable, and if you have your Wayback Machine there, because I got to get you out of this, I'm just going to shake that D off you a little bit there and get you back into the <laughs> standard orbit area, back into the uh, to the A, or I should say the refit. Squeeze in, because there, there, there ain't go. no room in this, this ship. <laughs> That's right. So can you kind of set up uh, the stage a little bit, maybe starting from the time that the... Um, that, that Kirk got back on the Enterprise from regular I mean, one. It's basically and you're fighting what was going without, on well, with in a the sense, without a view the, screen. The um, it's a little different, but it's kind of the same. And you're fighting basically w- with your sensors and trying to guess where the other person's going to be and sort of thing. But, you know, like Spock says, he's a two-dimensional combat leader or whatever you want. He thinks two-dimensionally. Why don't we uh, think three-dimensionally? Which is which makes sense because I mean you got the Z axis as well going up and down, so of course Kirk wins the battle thanks to uh, thanks to Spock, and yeah he saves the day in a sense before uh, before uh, the Reliant is is hits the self destruct button on the um, the Genesis. Well, he activates device. the Genesis torpedo. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which in a sense destroys yes. destroys uh, the the Reliant, but. Right. Fantastic battle. <laughs> it was a fantastic battle. It, um, you know, coming off Star Trek, the motion picture where it was, there was, you know, other than some Klingons firing some torpedoes and blowing up an asteroid, there wasn't a lot of that. And I think, you know, they brought back that action and, and adventure element to, to Star Trek too. So briefly from, from the undiscovered country, we had a, a, a battle of a different sort. Also, I, I would say, you know, more or less just like Balance of Terror because you have a cloaked ship involved. And, you know, somehow or another, the Klingon Empire built a prototype bird of prey that allowed to fire when cloaked. And that put, obviously, the Enterprise at a serious disadvantage. And so, really, the battle was a much smaller ship in the, um, in the bird of prey, but it had a tactical advantage on the, on the bigger... Um, much more higher profile target of of the Enterprise. And really, it was almost much more of a pummeling than a battle because every time they um, they tried to get a fix on when the um, uh, bird of prey shot, it, it would instantly move into another into another position before you know phasers could lock on or whatnot. And I guess they couldn't lock on because the dang thing was cloaked. So it became kind of this um, this cat and mouse, and then the USS Excelsior showed up to take some of the firepower and wa- take some of the hits. And while it was taking a little bit of a pummeling, the Enterprise was able to um, reprogram a torpedo that allowed it to um, to find the exhaust of the bird of prey, and and that's how it won. So I I, I say that you know kind of to give you kind of a brief synopsis of that, but. It was really just kind of a, a survival game for the Enterprise until they could figure out the trick in order to take out the um, the Bird of Prey. And you go back to the Matara Nebula battle, and it was really a... It was a battle of wits between a superhuman, genetically engineered guy who had a lot of intelligence, was blinded a little bit by vengeance, I should say a lot of it, 
and a Starfleet veteran who had been rusty. He hadn't been in the captain's chair in many years and um, was, was taking on, I guess, this, this supervillain. And so one of the aspects, let's, let's, let's start with the Battle of the Mutara Nebula, Richard. One of the things that I thought was, was really interesting that uh, Nicholas Meyer, Jack Sowards, uh, the rest of the team kind of came up with was here you had a crippled enterprise, right? There was an earlier battle where the Reliant took out engineering, took out a lot of its warp drive. Um, its main power was down for, for quite a bit. So it was, it was sputtering on impulse. It had one torpedo launcher that could could fire effectively. I think it had most of its phaser banks. But what they did was they set it up so that the Enterprise was much more heavily damaged. And and the way to mitigate the reliance advantage of sensors, view screens, or whatever was to hide in this nebula. And it also kind of created a pretty cool background. What, what did you think of that whole concept? I really liked it. I mean, it kind of reminded. I mean, one one of my favorite uh, submarine movies is actually Crimson or is Crimson Tide, and um, I love the whole hiding in uh, in on in all that uh, with with the subs and everything, and trying to find each other. And you know, it, obviously, as they're talking about um, uh, trying to find each other, uh, they're explaining what's going on and how how they how they do what they do and that's kind of like what this movie does as well i mean it in obviously in a sci-fi uh you know space battle kind of kind of thing i mean sound i mean everything's not the same obviously like sonar doesn't exist in space <laughs> but like um yeah i i really enjoyed it it's it's by far one of my one of my favorite uh uh space battles that are that are out there i mean besides nemesis that's actually my favorite, <laughs> but like it's uh, it's definitely one of those uh, those episodes that uh, you know obviously it just shows how witty and how brilliant of a tactician. I mean, it, it, let's say that he never uh, he never left the captain's chair. I could only imagine what he would do, and it's just I mean he's not he's he's not a, he's not stupid or or he's not a stupid commander or he's not a. Uh, He's not one of those uh, reckless commanders that goes guns a blazing, as we saw in the Balance of Terror, because uh, uh, I mean he was very careful in that uh, that episode as well, and it, it just I, I I could only imagine what he would be like. <laughs> I think he would be yeah. a lot more sharper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, as they say, all skills are perishable, and you know you can develop a kind of atrophy uh, when you're when you, when you don't. Um, you know, flex a muscle or, you know, use your brain to, to think in those terms. So if you're an admiral and you're basically administrative, or even if you're strategic and you're thinking about operations, that's more long-term thinking. It's more deployment um, thinking. It's not tactical. And that's what's really cool about, I thought, the whole premise of, of the battle. Because if you if you step it up a back, uh, back a bit, first they fold Khan with a relatively simple you know, by the book phrase, by using open communications to make it seem like the Enterprise was in worse shape than than it was. Mm -hmm. They had a predetermined destination where they literally were just hiding on the other side of the planet and then, you know, gunned it into the Matara Nebula, knowing that the Reliant would see them, but hoping that they could get in there before they caught up. And I thought all of that was was pretty brilliant and and well thought out. And that that comes a lot from familiarity. So when you're in units that um, that work closely together, that's a lot of what their training involves. It involves understanding how 
your um, your 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 commanding officer thinks or how your operations officer thinks, how how the how the folks in um, in in positions of responsibility respond to things, and that's that's why it becomes second nature. And and in this this battle, I think that's really demonstrated very strongly. That you know, um, the, it, I forget the episode in TNG where they just make a couple of glances and nods, and the next thing they know, they capture an alien with a force field. Never had to say a word. It's it's very similar to that in terms of instinct. This is what we're going to do, and they they played it beautifully. And Khan, who was just um, for his for all his intelligence you know, really lacked uh, the strategic thinking element because he was so blinded by vengeance, realized that he was giving up a tactical advantage. You know, when you're in a starship and um, you've got unlimited power and time and your oxygen isn't going to run run out, you, you, you find a nice position to wait. You know, you, you, it's just like uh, you, you made up a good point with Crimson Tide. You know, um, submarines will, will, will hide below thermal layers and things along those lines. And yeah, it could be quite a while to wait. Would make one hell of a boring movie, but that's <laughs> that would actually be the smarter approach. If your if your ultimate goal is just to kill the son of a gun, then and you know you've got nothing but time, then take it. Uh, so, I think the um, the battle of the Matara Nebula was um, was was really well scripted. It was um, it was entertaining. I thought the the effects of the the nebula, which we saw again in TNG and some. Some other episodes um, was was incredible in its design. I give a lot of credit to ILM for. I believe it was just like mixtures of chemicals and water, and it created uh, these 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 neat colors. And you know, it had uh, electrical discharges. You know, even for 1982, those special effects still they 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 still show up pretty well today. I think, Richard, what do you think? Yeah, I actually do. I mean, even with the um, the updated. Uh, uh the updated gra- gra- graphics is that, is that the right word? No, um, it's not really. Yeah, graphics. Forget it. <laughs> I mean, even with the updated graphics that, that when they touched it up, I mean, it still looks amazing. I mean, it, especially with I mean, ILM does some really good work. They really do. I mean, you can't. I mean, I I've read so many documentaries about um, how they make spaceship battles and just it uh, something as simple as um, as like the Enterprise uh, the cameras going right by the Enterprise and it takes like what three hours or something like that to get it right completely right but I mean it's so awesome on how they do that and how and the the amount of detail that they have to put into that work it's just. It, I mean, I can only imagine how long it took. I mean, maybe, um, it maybe it took three weeks to do that a whole entire scene or something like that. But I mean, it was just absolutely amazing. I I, I can't I can't give them any more credit than what I've already given them because it's it's definitely. I mean, by far, uh, the Wrath of Khan is one of the uh, one of the best movies in um, the Star Trek universe overall, or at least in my opinion, it is. Um, but like, it's, it's just, it's, it's beautiful. It really is. It's absolutely beautiful. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I mean, Wrath of Khan is a great movie and, um, you know, did a lot to, I guess, revitalize the franchise even more. And one of the things that's interesting about this battle, and we'll switch it to the undiscovered country and the battle of Camp Kittimer in a minute was, you know, I, I heard you at the beginning saying, well, you know, the Reliant being a Miranda class may not have been as powerful as the Enterprise. To me, the um, the Reliant seemed to be more powerful. Uh, it had that that 
that roll bar with the torpedo launcher, both forward and aft. It had as many phasers, I think, as, as the Enterprise, maybe maybe down a few. Um, and it just, it was, you know, much more compact, less vulnerable, right? The, um, as we saw in Beyond, the neck of the Enterprise was very vulnerable. And they, they, they did do some damage across that torpedo bay against the Enterprise, whereas, you know, the... Um, the the reliant just didn't have a profile it was it, it was kind of a flying brick so you you know you probably had <laughs> some clearer things that you could shoot at but less vulnerable i mean you know it hit it hit the nacelle which was vulnerable and it blew off an engine it was the first time we saw that in star trek history and that was pretty cool but um overall i felt like the um, the enterprise might have been a little bit outclassed in terms of weaponry the reliant just looked like a a menacing Corvette with a lot of firepower. And the Enterprise, you know, very graceful, um, powerful in its own right, but, you know, much more that um, that streamlined ship that, you know, could certainly take care of itself in a fight, but was was made more for exploration. And that's, that's kind of how I came, how I looked at the two ships. That's true. I mean, it, it very well, I mean, uh, tactically, I mean, obviously it, it outclassed it uh, no matter what. I mean, obviously that was... He should have been um, put up shields anyway, regardless, um, based on that regulation. But, like, I mean, definitely, uh, I mean, I guess you could compare, I mean, if we were to modernize it more, I guess you could compare that to uh, the Nebula-class starship, which actually basically was a battleship, and, and uh, you know, it basically, you know, it was like a, it, was, it was like a destroyer. I mean, for, I mean, or, or, yeah, destroyer, battleship, one of the, one of the two. Um, it definitely had a lot of guns on it and it had a lower profile too. So, I mean, I guess it's kind of harder to hit. I, I, I would assume so, but I, I mean, I would assume that, I mean, cause I know the constitution class is, oh, was it the retro? It was, it was the retro, wasn't it? Uh, that was in yeah, Rabicon. Yeah, it was the, re, it was mm-hmm. the refit. So maybe it, yeah. Okay. So maybe the Reliant was the newer, was the newer starship. Cause I think, yeah. Cause yeah, the constitution was, was older. So well, it's it's yeah. hard to it's hard to say because the um, you could say that the Enterprise was older because it was refitted, but the only thing that wasn't touched was one tile in the men's bathroom on deck six. <laughs> Otherwise, <laughs> the entire ship was refit from stem to stern, and you know it had increased power of its phasers through the engines. It had um, technically, if you if you read the the schematics on it, it. It supposedly had a cloaking device in the motion picture if it needed to use one, which I thought was kind of cool, but it obviously never went that way. And um, you know, so it was it was modernized. Where I get a little confused, and this is where, you know, I think uh, Mr. Ataz, Jeff was always very helpful with, was what the <laughs> timeline was between the motion picture ending and the pickup of the Wrath of Khan, and we get the sense that it's been a good five years or more, or, or beyond that. So. From the time it was refit, it had aged a bit. Not terribly, but it went from being a ship of the line, and though it had a training crew and it wasn't a training ship, they were manning the ship for more missions. So it had mm-hmm. it had somewhat of a lifespan. In the next movie, in Star Trek Three, we find, you know, this ship is 20 years old. So do they mean the from the time it was refit? Because it was a lot older than that if you go back through Star Trek history. You know, it was, it was 20 years old during the TOS timeline. Um, it was, you know, the ship had been around. So it's just just interesting. So I, I think, you know, if you looked at the bridges and all that other stuff, you would get the sense that the Enterprise was a little bit more modern and more updated. Um, but, you know, 
old doesn't necessarily mean inferior when it comes to weaponry, firepower, things like that. So, you know, probably if um, if it was a fight where um, you say the shields were raised at the beginning, uh, it probably would have been much more of, a, I wouldn't say a fair fight, because half the battle is just winning it, and, and Khan was genius in how he fought it, uh, and how he took out their shields and knew exactly where to hit them. Um, it, it would have been interesting to see if the ship's just mano-a-mano, uh, which one would have would have been able to slug it out, you know? I think the Miranda would have, it would have definitely lost. <laughs> if, of if it was it like it's the Enterprise, yeah, dude. Yeah, it's yeah. the Enterprise, yeah. If you're the slug yeah, it out and, like like heavyweight fighters, yeah, it, it, yeah. I don't yeah. think I think the Enterprise would have won that one. <laughs> of course it would, because you know the Enterprise should always win, always, always, always. We should have no suspense in that. The Enterprise rocks. Okay. It's the flagship and, of the fleet. <laughs> at least it was in the next generation. It definitely was the flagship of the Federation. So then let's let's uh, let's transit over the to um, the undiscovered country, and then we'll kind of pull the whole thing together. So the undiscovered country was definitely uh, what Nick Meyer loves. You know, he loves that that submarine element of things. Mm. Um, you've got a ship that can cloak, can fire from all these different directions, and it just gave the Enterprise fits. And if you think about it, for the whole length of the battle that took <laughs> took <laughs> across the Enterprise. I don't think fires a shot for an extended period of time. I mean, I don't know how many hits. That that old girl took, but you know it 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 was in it was in pretty rough shape, and I will tell you from an entertainment piece of it, Richard, for me it was really hard to watch. It was just hard to watch that ship take a pummeling. What what were your thoughts? Yeah, it wasn't. I mean, if we were to yeah, if we're comparing it to the Wrath of Khan, yeah, it definitely was not one of those uh, battles that I couldn't really watch either. Because I mean, yeah. It, I mean, it was. It, I mean, I guess. Yeah, it's. It was. Yeah, it really was difficult to see the Enterprise taking a, a serious beating again because I did not want to see it to, uh, to be destroyed again. <laughs> I mean, right. But like, I mean, right. yeah, it really was difficult. I mean, and but you know, looking at that, it's like you would think that they would have more than one prototype, especially when. The Klingon uh, Empire uh, didn't like the Federation at that time. I mean, but then again, they were you know uh, they were basically well, fighting for survival, so for their home planet. Well, that was it. That's the definition of a prototype, right? I mean, they, yeah, it's you know, and and obviously, if you if you put it through kind of the lens of Star Trek canon, there must have been something wrong with that prototype. So either you know, it uh, it, it yeah, was they didn't build a second one, one and then. They didn't build a second one, and they didn't yeah. keep the schematics. <laughs> well, it could have been, but you know the way I always look at things like that. When you do have a prototype, um, usually it's it, it you know the first type of any new class of ship usually has a ton of bugs in it, and and there's issues. And while it wasn't very defined, it seemed. I mean, obviously the ship seemed to function just well, but who knows? You know, we we could take this really into geekdom. You know, into the folks that are like trying to make it as real as possible, and that's fine to do. I guess uh, when I was watching it years ago, the way I kind of reconciled it in, in my head was that maybe it had serious radiation problems or, you know, uh, you could only launch so many torpedoes, although they launched a ton of them. 
before the system just gives out and, you know, there's a power surge and, and the thing is just dead in the water and completely vulnerable. I don't know what it is, but I'm assuming that, you know, they, they, it, it probably after an extended period of use, we would have figured out that flaw because, again, turns out that the ship is more effective when it shoots and, and it has to use all its power and become uncloaked. So mm-hmm. that's just my, my thought process. There's nothing to back that up. It's just where I went with it. Right. No, that makes sense, you know. I mean, definitely, uh, I'm, su- I'm sure the radiation problem, maybe that's the reason why they have an exhaust port. <laughs> Which you would think that they would store that on, on board. <laughs> I mean, because, I mean, that's the great way to, like, basically, <laughs> uh, you know, find out where exactly you're at when you have, uh, when it uh, when it emits its waste, so... Uh, well, I, I I guess I took it because they said plasma, right? Like, was is that what the like, is, is was that what the what its yeah. uh, exhaust was? So yeah. I, I yeah, so I took it to mean that when they're on impulse power, uh, you know, it burns gas, hmm. and and the, I guess the impulse power units on the Enterprise would would burn gas too. It just that's that's how I took it, and because that there's 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 an emission, uh, and you know, in space, I don't know how fast that dissolves or if it just sits there or, or whatever. I mean, that's that's always a good question if it just just you know, well, not long um, enough for the torpedo you know, to ju- take take a basically a, a maze through space <laughs> to follow that thing. Well, <laughs> yeah, I think I think the biggest flaw in all of that was that um, well, there were a couple. I um, I've one of the things I've always star- struggled with Star Trek was you have on the Enterprise um, four hundred and thirty two people, and I think on the Enterprise refit it's somewhere around five hundred. So you have five hundred people aboard this ship. Mm-hmm. And I am sure that you would have people that would be weapons experts, like a Carol Marcus, maybe <laughs> on board. <laughs> so that yeah. if you needed to, if you needed to um, reprogram a torpedo, which you would think you would just do from a computer panel, not actually open up the guts of it, and install a sensor to go track, you know, gaseous anomalies, none of that made sense to me. And it, it, although it was kind of a, a, for lack of a better term, a cute scene with Spock and McCoy performing surgery on a torpedo. It made no sense that those were the two guys that were doing it and not, you know, a well-trained crewman who is in charge of armaments um, putting the switching in. That would be a technician's job. And, you know, I get it. I get the screen time. I get all that stuff. But for me, you know, one of the things that um, will pull me out of a story a lot is if you see all these people on a ship, and we see it all the time in Star Trek, but there's only seven guys that do anything. Now, in any in any walk of life, I don't care what you do for a living. If you take your your 100% of your employee population, 20% of them do 80% of the work, right? You get 20 rock stars. For the most part, everybody else plays Guitar Hero. That's the way it is. Um, but we are so far below that 20, 80% <laughs> when it comes to the the officers of the Enterprise in, or any starship in any... Um, incarnation, uh, because that's just, just the way it goes. And, you know, you would have a Miles O'Brien, a chief, who would be doing that kind of stuff. And so it, that kind of took me out of it a little bit. And I didn't find it to be that clever, because I figure that technology exists today. Um, you know, you, we have we have missiles, rockets, torpedoes that can track signals of almost any kind, even exhaust. Um, you know, that's, that's what a heat-seeking missile does. It, it finds the heat source and goes after it. Or you have the harm missile, anti-radiation missile. It 
picks up a transmission and goes right for it. You 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 know, and and when it comes to submarines, it's sonar. And once the once the a surface ship's torpedo pings it, the the torpedo's going to hit it. So the technology was there, and um, you know, to me, it was like it was mildly entertaining, and I like the. Um, the Shakespearean quotes that were coming over and the frustrations that they were having, you know, God, I'd give real money to shut him up and things like that. <laughs> I thought it was, um, it was pretty funny. And the quotes that, uh, that, uh, uh, General Chang was, was, was quite, I thought were, were very relevant, you know, and he was into yep. it, cry havoc mm-hmm. and, and all that stuff. So I think the battle itself was somewhat entertaining in that, in that light and, and funny, but yeah, watching the Enterprise just take hit after hit after hit. And then a real simple solution that the communications officer came up with. Thank God, you know, <laughs> because I was like, you know, because that's, that's, that's weapons technology for you. But I mean, I, I understand that it was Spock who started the conversation. So, right. you know, they, they you know, and, and once again, they, 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 they saved the galaxy, which was, which was kind of cool. But yeah, the battle of Camp Kittimer, I, I don't think, um, uh, comes anywhere close to the Battle of the Matara Nebula as far as um, skill set, tactical, um, mm-hmm. any of it. It was uh, it was much well thought out and much more dramatic, I think, in the Wrath of Khan. What say you, Richard? I I, I completely agree. I mean, it, maybe if it was uh, maybe an undiscovered country, it it would uh, have like the Excelsior come in and. I don't know. Start shooting all over the place, trying to find them and and one or doing something. I mean, come in, come on, Sulu. I mean, you're you're a you're alumni of the Enterprise. Come on. <laughs> all right. Know. So, go ahead. Yeah. Let me. I'm gonna start with something controversial. So, the um, the movies were loaded with drama, right? Right. They were just loaded with drama, especially you know two and three, heavy, heavy drama. Uh, five didn't really happen. And then during the undiscovered country, um, what if, what if the, um, the bird of prey was successful in taking out the Excelsior? Would that have made it more interesting? What if we, what if we Probably. lost Mr. Sula? What if, what if he gave his life, um, to, to save the enterprise? Yeah, I could see that. I mean, I, I just, I mean, if, if if we were to make, okay, if we were to cre- recreate this scene, mm-hmm. and let's just say Sulu dies at the end with the Excel, going down with the Excelsior, um, and of course the Enterprise saving the day, I, uh, I mean, I would love to see like maybe let's say let's say they don't figure let let's say they don't figure out the whole cloak, uh, cloaking device thing, and let's say for some reason they disrupt his uh, his cloaking device or something like that, I would love to see like torpedoes going through the air and phaser fire and you know just seeing a bird of prey actually move in in a way that it's supposed to move like it's a it's a very maneuverable uh starship and it's designed that way i mean obviously we've seen that in deep space nine uh uh some of the some of the uh, bird of preys that are in uh in there i think this one was bigger than those i'm not entirely sure um, this prototype was bigger than uh, the ones that we saw in Deep Space Nine, which they're the older ones as well. They're the older uh, uh, bird of prey that we've seen in TOS and all that kind of stuff. But like, if if it was maneuverable like that, and we saw it cut through the uh, cut through the uh, the scenes like that, I think it would be a better scene. Um, 
I wouldn't doubt it if it's because of budgetary they couldn't do that. <laughs> well, I, I understand the budget. I, I'm yeah. sure. <laughs> I they didn't have. Like, they didn't have. Yeah. They didn't I have mean, much money if for this it, movie. it actually would have been good in CGI. I actually uh, I would have paid to see that. But I mean, if it would have been like that and they were shooting at each other, and let's just say the freaking Excelsior couldn't uh, couldn't hit the bird of prey because it was moving too fast or maneuvering too fast or it was cutting and and whatnot, then I guess I could I can uh, that would probably make it a lot more interesting. What a, 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 an image went through my head because uh, since the Excelsior is, it has a, such a strong neck and it's got a big yeah. uh, underbody, um, mm-hmm. it reminds me of like a, a like a a, a twenty cannon uh, like <laughs> ship. And all like I, mean, I watched Pirates of the Caribbean earlier today, <laughs> so all I could see was you know phaser fire and torpedoes going left or right like like it's a old <laughs> uh, ancient sea pirates <laughs> or something like that you know but yeah. like yeah that would be cool I actually wouldn't mind something like that that I you know just something to make it look yeah, pretty I think, cool yeah uh, yeah I, I agree with you I think that um, it was kind of a lost opportunity not don't don't get me wrong folks I, I didn't want to see not necessarily see Captain Sulu die but. No, 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 not at all. Every every actor, so they say, you know, wants to have a good death scene. And, you know, the, the Mr. Spock got his, Captain Kirk got a terrible one, but you know, I the way I the way I looked at it is, you know, you probably could not blow up the Excelsior. But let's say a series of torpedoes were heading towards the Enterprise, which at this point was just about crippled. And you know, it it hit you know, the 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 Excelsior just jumps into the path of those torpedoes, maybe shoots one or two of them down and um, the other ones hit the bridge and, you know, the ship goes, you know, the ship goes dark and just is just floating there. And then they figure out how to destroy the, um, you know, during that time that it gave the Enterprise, it gave them that opportunity to, to destroy the, um, the bird of prey. I think it would have been, you know, you, you know. I think of the beginning of Star Trek 09, you know, with that beautiful music amongst all the chaos, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. It could have been a very touching way for Sulu to come in and save the day and give him, you know, his most special moment in what would have been uh, his, in it, which even if you take flashback out of Voyager, that, that all occurred before this last scene. So he still could have come back for that scene in Voyager. Uh, and and it wouldn't have impacted it, and it would have been a very dramatic, I think, very emotional moment because everybody loves Sulu, right? Everybody mm-hmm. loves him, and um, I think it would have added something to to that because you lost Spock at the end of the Battle of the Matara Nebula, and it tore our guts out. It wouldn't have been as impactful for Sulu, but it would have been something very memorable to me. That battle was very forgettable. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And she's a, she's a tough little ship. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah, to take that kind of beating. Yeah, yeah. Any they, they I don't they they didn't shoot their disruptors, did they? No, I don't think they did. Yeah, it was all torpedoes. It was that, all torpedoes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. No, that's that's the way they played it, and um, which I guess makes sense. I don't know. Um, I don't I don't think they the, the disruptors are kind of like the uh, the jab 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 and then the right hook is the torpedo and if it if you don't and the jabs are usually meant to disorient you so if those if those torpedoes yeah. are coming from any which direction it really doesn't matter much Did you okay, okay so since we're talking about Sulu did you mm-hmm. do you like him as the supporting role that he had in the TOS 
or do you like him as captain or do or or is there no di- uh, difference between the two you know it's funny i um i met george takai in 1982 at a convention and um i a lot of us then who read starlog and were were kind of up in the know back back then um realized that in star trek 2 they had cut away a pretty important scene for George Takei, and he was not happy at all with Star Trek II. I mean, he thought it was a good movie, but he was not happy because he was, in his words, just a bus driver. And the one scene that he had where he was going to be taking over another ship um, was cut. And you can see that in the shuttle when they're heading to the Enterprise. You know, he starts off saying, any chance to go aboard the Enterprise? And you can see his mouth open to to carry on a conversation about his new assignment and it was all cut out and then it just it shows the enterprise and it cuts back to captain perks captain kirk saying i'm just glad to have you at the helm for two weeks because i don't think these kids can steer so there was a, a lost line in that about him not being assigned to the enterprise but essentially going there to help out with the training crews and he lost that opportunity and then of course in star trek three um, they didn't give him the Excelsior. It was James B. Sinking that had the role. They gave him a nice little piece. Star Trek Four. the poor guy, um, supposed to have a scene with his great-great-great-grandfather, a little kid, and they can't get the kid to behave, so they had to cut that out of the movie. You know, Star Trek Five relegated to just being, you know, a, an automaton that gets corrupted by Cybok. So in Star Trek Six, he finally had um, a role of note. The guy paid his dues. He was a, a you know, he, he didn't he didn't whine about it too much. Like I said, he was he was upset that he was just a bus driver, and they had to actually go to see him at his house because he wasn't going to do Star Trek Two to convince him to be in the movie because it just wouldn't be Star Trek. And then they cut out the most important scene that he wanted. So he, but he stuck with it. So I guess I, I can't divorce myself from, you know, do I like Sulu better as uh, the helmsman? you know, uh, warp factor, whatever, and, and whatnot. Uh, because, you know, as, as the helmsman, sometimes like in Star Trek, the motion picture, he took the con, he had a few more lines, you know, he was, um, he was utilized, but in Star Trek six, that was his, his big break. And I thought he, he played it well. I thought he played a very good captain. You know, I, I I think highly of, of George Takai and what he's been through in his experiences, um, I've had some issues kind of more recently with some of the things he's been saying with the kind of the William Shatner thing. It's like, come on, dude, you're both in your 80s. Let's let's hug and make up. But let's, you know, if you just focus on it for me, I, I loved him in that role. And I think it would have been a um, glorious ending if he had saved the, inter- if he had literally saved the Enterprise and gave up his own life. And there would have been, you know, a different level of reverence for him and his character if they were able to pull that off. Yeah, I didn't realize there were, there were that many uh, opportunities that were missed for him. Um, and, and the the reason why I was asking that because as we were talking about the Excelsior and him coming in um, uh, to the ba- uh, to the battle at Kinemer, uh I was just thinking that you know, to me he he I thought he did better on Voyager than he did on uh, the Undiscovered Country, and I thought he overplayed it or at least that's how that's how i saw it, it wasn't as relaxed but that's just me i mean because mm-hmm. i mean i remember sulu from all his uh, all the episodes and everything and i i anytime anytime he came up 
it didn't even matter if it, if it was the main role or whatever. Well, he never had a main role, but um, like anytime he came up, it was exciting to see him uh, see him act, and it was great. And I actually liked him in all the all the other uh, support as a supporting actor in all the other movies as well. Um, I just I, I just thought he went a little bit overboard. Um, I mean, he really? didn't go overboard in Voyager. He was perfect in Voyager. I absolutely. I mean, that's one. That's one of my. That's one of my favorite episodes of Voyager. Um, Is it? And, oh yeah. Oh, oh yeah. I love. Oh, I well, I mean, I it, was a, it, it was a guest. I mean, it was George Gay. I mean, come on. It, you, you know, the lost mm. missions of the Excelsior, <laughs> sort of sort of thing. But like, yeah, I thought he was perfect in that. But it's just, I don't know. I, I thought it was just a little bit overboard. But then again, it's not like they got any action anyway, so it didn't really matter. So well, I thought he had some of the better lines in the movie, which you know, it's just kind of funny. You know, like fly her apart then, or you know, just that calm, <laughs> just 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 looking at there and just you know, when the when the when the first hit on the, uh, the bird of prey is like target that explosion and fire, just this very calm demeanor, um, and you know, let's just take him out. So I, I thought he had some some pretty good pretty good lines, and you know, um, the departure, you know, with the whole crew on the screen on the on the, on the mm. screen was cool. It was nice, you know. Take care. And no, that was not very cool genuine. Or nice. That was perfect. It, yeah, was, it was perfect. And, perfect. It you know, really I guess was. you know, yeah, they they did a nice job with both casts, just kind of you know, um, filling up the view screen. So yeah, it was with Rand and everything. But I, you know, I, I guess, like I said, I was I was very happy for. For George Takai, for whatever reason, I was always a bigger Chekhov fan. I, I, and I don't know what the reason is. I just did. I always thought he was kind of a cool dude, and maybe it was it was the Russian or whatnot. And and, and Chekhov had so many more opportunities when it came to the Star Trek movies. He just did. He had a big role in Star Trek Two, a pretty big role in Star Trek Four, decent role in Star Trek Five. You know, he took the con again, and then you know in Star Trek Six, he was kind of the guy that was relegated, but he had had more shots than than Takai. And then Nichelle Nichols, that poor lady, you know, she is such a trooper and such a team player. Um, they never really gave her a lot to do, you know. And then what they did give her to do in Star Trek V was a little... Uh. So, anyway, we just had one of our famous Standard Orbit tangents, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much. <laughs> Sorry, that was Because that was that's doing. <laughs> what we do. Yes, but, you know, it was it's it's good conversation, Richard. It really is because, you know, we... we um, we we root for our heroes. We cheer for all the cast. We love them, even though there's the big three in the original series. We cheer for all seven. We love them all, and you know they never really got the um, because they weren't on the air long enough to um, to get the attention that that so many of the folks did on on the next generation. And you know some of that exposure on TNG was overexposure. You know. Um, and they, they would fall into to trends. We never got to even get it to that point with the original series crew. But, um, I'll, you know, I'll say it's one exception. Chekhov does tend to scream a lot. I don't know what it is, but he screams a lot. <laughs> well, he wants to be heard. I mean, no one can hear him through that accent. <laughs> I, I don't know. You know, they stick they stick things in his ears and... You know, it's just it's just kind of a rough thing. Or, you know, he gets electrocuted during the battle, during the... the, the, the um, the scene in Star Trek, the motion picture, you know, he's just like, ah, he's on fire, his ears are on, it's just bad stuff, you know. Just, yeah, that's right, because the Wrath of Khan, he had a, uh, that bug in his ear, yeah. Yeah. It was a little bit more than just a bug buddy. <laughs> oh, a slug, bug, you know, slug with armor, whatever. <laughs> yeah. So, 
final comments, Richard, as you as you think about the two battles we talked about here. Uh, definitely comparing the two, uh, the Rathacon takes it by a long shot, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if we were compared to the next generation, that might be a different story. I mean, especially against the the, the movie, I will not uh, I will not say. <laughs> but like yeah i mean overall it was it is it's it's a great movie it, um uh, it's a great battle scene uh in the wrath of khan um a lot uh it didn't click in my head like it was it was like uh with the balance of terror until i watched the balance of terror again and i'm like oh we've seen this before oh yeah <laughs> and it's just it's 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 uh, it's a really cool it's a really cool scene i i love every every minute of it so, but yeah, yeah love they, the they, undiscovered they, they, country. It's an important movie to watch too. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, we 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 weren't talking about the the movies holistically. I think there's a lot True. of people. You know, if if you were to say what which is the better movie, I think it would be a much deeper conversation. And um, you know, I, I'm guessing uh, more people kind of sway towards the Wrath of Khan, but I'm not sure. I've heard people say the 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 undiscovered country is their favorite. I think Bichet. Uh, has that as his favorite, as a matter of fact. I, I know he loves the music in Undiscovered Country, which mm. did have a great score. They both had good scores, very good scores. But mm-hmm. yeah, I, I agree with you, Richard. There there really wasn't much of a contest. It seemed like it could be um, a bigger, broader discussion when you talk about the two. I think we had fun with it, but yeah, <laughs> uh, soup to nuts, the Battle of the Matara Nebula was uh, much more engaging and uh, much much more um, thought out, I think, and it, it and it worked out for um, for both movies actually. Uh, the mm-hmm. the circumstances were very different, but uh, but but both enjoyable. And you know, I, <laughs> I'm sorry. Every time you, I, I laugh when you bring out like battles in TNG, because the first thing I want to say is, how can you have a battle when you surrender off the bat? But uh. um, there were there were a few. <laughs> There were a few pretty decent battles, but you know they they usually like even in yesterday's Enterprise they they, they just seemed to seem to get pummeled, um, and and it, it seemed to be a thing that um, even in the movies the TOS movies they kind of went in that direction too. I I'm, I'm not sure why, and and it didn't get any better in the reboots. Uh, you know it's like, dang I just I just want to have the most powerful badass kickass starship. I want it to be a ship of exploration, but. If somebody's going to um, kick sand in its face, um, you know it just it just completely uh, knocks you backwards, and um, mm-hmm. yeah, it just doesn't seem to happen with these movies. Well, she's anyway, a tough gal. <laughs> she is a tough gal. Yep, she's a beautiful lady, and we love her, right? <laughs> so, ah, uh, uh, so battle of the battles isn't the only thing we are discussing this week on Trek FM. So here's a a quick look at what else is playing on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Saturday Morning Trek. He's like the little kid from the very last episode of St. Elsewhere. Boba Fett and all this takes place in the head of Chewbacca's son. The whole panoply of Star Wars. It all takes place in Lumpy's head, all of Star Wars. I think that we may have cracked the the code of Star Wars altogether. I think we did. Lumpy created Boba Fett. Warp 5. They never really do say what sport it is, right? We just assume it's baseball because he said doubleheader. Well, he went to a baseball game with her, and he said baseball. I think game he said baseball in Doylestown earlier. So. Yeah. Oh uh, well. All right. Well, sorry, writers, you messed that one up. Then this is. I don't even want to do this commentary anymore. Let's switch it to something <laughs> else. Melodic tracks. 
two things to say about that. Uh, the first is that Horner was really good at writing sustained cues. Always has been. Uh, you know, going back to some of his early stuff like Star Trek II, where you have the Battle of the Mutara Nebula, you know. That's, that, that's, that's not necessarily an easy thing to do. The 602 Club. And it's not subtle, but this is what happens. Ego is what happens when you only find meaning in yourself and you are truly all that matters. And introducing our newest show, Primitive Culture, a look at history and culture through Star Trek. The key thing with Jatrelli is all of these elements are exactly the same thing as the events in real life. You know, the Metron Cascade is the bomb. Rhinax is Nagasaki or Hiroshima. You know, the poisoning is analogous to radiation poisoning and all these different things. And the, the parallels are enormously overt with Jatrell straight away. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. You can find us on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course, you can always stream or download the MP3 file from our website at Trek.fm and grab the RSS link as well. If you're an Apple user, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. That makes it easier for our listeners to find the show as they search iTunes and help us increase our visibility for new listeners. Um, speaking of new listeners or, or, or ways that you can help our network, Patreon. P-A-T-R-E-O-N slash Trek FM. This is how you as fans, listeners can help support our network. You know, we have over 20 shows on this on this network and it's pretty expensive to to get the uh, to bandwidth and to, 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 to beam this thing through Lipson Pro and to, to get the equipment that we need. It's, um, it's, it's quite hefty. There's a lot of shows coming out and we do it all commercial free. We don't interrupt any of our conversations to to have commercials, and I, I think that that's a big deal. And um, and we love being able to kind of talk through things. So if you can spare any amount, we would appreciate it. $15. If you can donate $15, you can join the roundtable. Uh, Trek FM's way of bringing in a lot of uh, our listeners into podcasting, and that's, that's kind of how I found my way. I was on the very first roundtable a couple of years ago in June, and, um, you know, ever since, it's been it's been quite a ride. And if you donate $25 a month or more, you can be an associate producer on the, um, the show of your choice. Now, this is where I get um, very, very thankful, a little bit emotional, actually. We have the best um, group of associate producers of any show. We, I, I've, I've said it for a long time now. We may not have the highest rated show, but we've got the fiercest, most dedicated listeners. And we've got seven phenomenal, seven phenomenal associate producer. So I'd like to say thank you to Renee Roberts, Richard, thank you, uh, Aaron Harvey, Nick Anastasio, Tim Robertson, Norman Lau, and Corey Elrod. Zach and I are thrilled to have all of you supporting this show, and we appreciate you very much. So Richard, where can we find you on the interwebs? Well, um, everyone can hear me on Earl Gray. I'm one of the co-hosts with Amy Nelson and Lee Hutchison, where we talk about everything about the TNG universe. Uh, and uh, you can also find me on the Babel Conference. I pop in here and there, stir a little trouble in the pot. And I am also <laughs> on Twitter. <laughs> I don't do that often, but sometimes. <laughs> okay. But uh, you can also find me on Twitter. My handle is xransom. X Ransom, where'd that come from? 
it's an old high school, um, I guess, self-nickname. It's a combination of a band that I used to love, which was called Ransom. And uh, there was another band that I absolutely love. It was called X-Human. And um, both of them were metal bands. So I combined the two. <laughs> and oh, there we go. Okay. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Because you hear things like that, and you start to wonder, well, what could that mean? X ransom? Did he? Was he kidnapped? Uh, you know, I just didn't know. So <laughs> that's what everyone keeps. Uh, that's what everyone tells me when I'm online, uh, or when I'm playing PlayStation. I was like, what does that mean? Did, did you? Uh, are you? Were you previously held for ransom? I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> were you held for ransom and nobody paid? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, if Aww. no one paid, I wouldn't be here. <laughs> well, maybe they just kind of gave up, you know. Um, yeah. <laughs> probably. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, uh, you can find me also on the Babel Conference. I'm, I'm on there as often as I can be when work allows. But I love interacting with, with the folks. And hopefully you have a good sense of humor because I like to take some digs and, and, and poke some fun at it, too. You know, life is so serious. This The whole reason we do this is to escape a little bit and have some fun. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter. I am at Boston, SCPO. That stands for Boston Senior Chief Petty Officer. And uh, I want to thank Richard one more time for, for joining me this week. It was fun. Uh, we, we, we have um, some of the better conversations. I also want to thank you again for inviting me on to Earl Grey. Uh, that was also kind of a, a pretty cool episode. So I, I'm glad that uh, everybody on this network is so tight and works so well together. So, Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, buddy. So thanks, everyone, for listening. And join us again next time here on Trek FM for another episode of Standard Orbit. <laughs>